Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 13. This is the word of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's with me in prayer, please. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for the, your, the, the worship that we've been able to enjoy this morning and uh, praising you and thinking about how great your love is. Lord, now as we turn our eyes to this passage, we just would uh, ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might be able to see what you would have us see this morning, that we might be able to see Jesus in all his glory and majesty, but also ask ourselves, what must we do? Lord, to love you well, as, as you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, Augustine of Hippo wrote this, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself. And our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Our passage this morning is really all about God's rest. It's actually a continuation of chapter 3. And even though verses 14 and 16 are here in the same uh, chapter 4, they're really the beginning of a new section and line of thinking from our, our preacher. But here, and I like to call him the preacher, by the way, as you read Hebrews, you'll note there's so much exhortation in here that it really feels a lot like a sermon. So I'll refer to him as the preacher instead of the author. So our our preacher is really just continuing his exhortation to respond in faith so that the readers and the hearers of this letter will will be able to enter into God's rest. This passage really presents us with a number of questions. What is rest? Where is rest? When is rest? Well, I think it would be helpful before we get into the passage itself to gain a common understanding of what rest is. Rest is really just simply... A ceasing from undesired work and worry. It's a ceasing from undesired work and worry. It doesn't mean idleness or inactivity. You notice I said undesired work. One of the most restful things I do is to work in my yard. I love to work in my yard. Piddle about, mow the grass, pull a dandelion or two. So rest really isn't ceasing activity. It's ceasing from unwanted labor. It's relief from anxiety. It's relief from worry. Rest is like when I came home from college that first summer. I'd been away for a year, fending for myself, working hard at unwanted things like calculus and chemistry. But at home, there was rest from studies, and there was really rest from worry for myself. The fridge was always stocked. So it's a great place to be. Rest is a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. It actually starts in Genesis 2-2, 
right? What did God do? He rested on the seventh day from all his work of creation. So this is actually the first time that we hear about rest. And then if we were to fast forward to Exodus, of course, you see that in the Ten Commandments, God gives his people the, co- the command to observe a weekly Sabbath, a weekly day of rest. And really, he meant it for more than just a weekly routine. It, it pointed to an eventual rest, a rest that would be marked more by spiritual rest than by physical rest. Now, really, where rest shines most brightly is the promised land. God promised to give his people rest in the promised land. Rest from enemies on each side and rest from endless toil. They wouldn't have to fend for themselves. And and the land would yield its fruit easily. The fridge was always going to be stocked. The preacher is answering a question that he knows the hearers will have. Does the promise... Of God's rest still stand. If the unfaithful of the wilderness generation didn't make it to that rest, what about us? Does the promise still stand for us? So, as we'll see, he answers that question with a very hearty yes. But he doesn't leave it at that. Like any good preacher, he also exhorts his people to enter that rest. And that's the context. That's really the context. For our passage today. And if you'll notice in your outlines, I've I've outlined our passage uh, starting with God's rest now and then God's rest forever, which both of those points will really be mostly about trying to explain the text. And then we'll turn our eyes to the last point there enter God's rest, which is really going to be what does that mean? How do we do that in our lives today? What does it mean for eternity? So let's look at point one then in your outlines, God's rest now. And I'm going to just go right to verse two. We'll come back to verse one later. Verse two, for, good, for the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. He's the, the them is the wilderness generation. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, just a quick refresher on this story from Numbers 13 and 14. Moses had sent the 12 spies to spy out the promised land, and they came back with kind of a mixed report. On the one hand, the land is beautiful. There's much bounty there, but also there are a lot of people in this land, and they live in in fortified cities, and some of them are the sons of Achim, I think is how you say his name, but basically they're giants, the Nephilim. We can't take this land, is what they said. Even Joshua and Caleb, they responded with good news. We can take this land. We can do it. God is in our side. But the people responded. They they responded poorly. It was really with fear and loathing. We don't want to die. Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to have these people slaughter us, to kill our wives and our little ones? God did not appreciate their response. He said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And so the wilderness Jews didn't enter God's rest because they were not united by faith. That doesn't mean united one to another in faith, but they had not united their hearts to God in trusting Faith. They were a part of the faith community, 
but they did not have faith in God. Now, a few weeks ago, Rick gave us a helpful framework. I think it was a helpful framework for, for understanding faith. First is, is understanding, is, is kind of a, a knowledge. Then, be, then comes belief, which is, you could say, agreement or you assent. I believe. But if the first two are actually not joined by trust, you don't actually have faith. It is trust that makes faith distinct from belief. Verse 3 follows right after and says that those who believe enter that rest. Those who believe, believe with faith, enter that rest. So what is God's rest? And we talked about rest already. What is God's rest? We've already defined it as a ceasing from undesired work and worry, but what is unique about God's rest that he's talking about here? Well, like much of Hebrews, there is kind of an already, not yet aspect to this, kind of a dual meaning to God's rest. Now, when we talk about this idea of an already and a not yet, what we're talking about is the idea that something has begun, but it has not yet come to completion. You know, at the start of each preseason, Broncos fans live in the already, not yet. Already, the Broncos are on their way to winning another Super Bowl, but it is not yet completed. And of course, the last five or six years, as a Bronco fan, they've had their faith tested in the already, not yet, as the not yet continues to stretch on and on. Maybe a better example is the kingdom of God. When Jesus was resurrected, his kingdom broke through. And it is already here in the lives of his believers. But it is not complete, nor will it be, until the new heavens and the new earth. The already, not yet. And that's what we have here with God's rest. So how do believers then today, what does it mean for a believer that's united in faith to God, experience rest today? Well, first, they're free from the worry of sin because in Christ, sin is forgiven. They're free from self-concern because the God of all creation, the same God who cares for the the sparrows and the lilies that are going to pop out of the ground here pretty soon, has much more concern for his people. He cares for them. He cares for you even more so you can rest. They can rest from constantly seeking the next great thing, the next great philosophy, the next religion, the next self-help technique because they have found, or rather, they have been found by the one who is true religion. They can rest from achievement and from needing to prove themselves to others because they don't need to prove anything to the one who made them. You don't need to prove anything to God. He made you. You're His. They can rest from running in circles, frustrated at all of life's annoyances and inconveniences because they know that God is sovereign over all things, including the red light on the way to church this morning. Most importantly, most importantly, believers can rest from working to earn salvation. Followers of Christ no longer work to earn merit or favor with God. It's all been earned by Jesus, and then he gave all of his earnings to us. It's done. We don't have to work anymore. 
Now, I know that some of you may not feel very restful. Some of us struggle with anger. Now, it shows up as kind of low-grade annoyance and frustration, but I've got news for you. That's anger. It doesn't feel very peaceful. I know some of us here today struggle with anxiety, with worry, but God wants you to rest today from your anger and from your anxiety and to trust him. He's in charge. He's got it. You don't need to worry. That's point one in our outlines. Point two, God's rest forever. So we've already talked about the already, the today of God's rest. Let's talk about the not yet. Just very briefly, verses six through eight, I just um, want to give you a a quick outline of them. They're really sort of a sophisticated argument about the fact that God's rest still remains. In verse uh, 6, the preacher says that the, the wilderness Jews didn't see God's rest because they disobeyed by not believing. And then in verse 7, he points out that in Psalm 95, David talks about entering into God's rest today. Well, David wrote that psalm two to 300 years after the wilderness Jews were stuck out there in the wilderness outside of the promised land. And it's interesting, David writes that psalm with the word today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That today is not just for the day that he wrote it, but for that every time a believer reads that psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It is an ongoing today. And then in verse 8, Joshua, Caleb, and the other Jews who did actually enter that promised land, they saw a form of rest. But as we know, as the story unfolds, it was not God's final rest for them. Otherwise, he wouldn't have spoken of another rest through David two to three hundred years later. So that's a quick summation of verses six six through eight. Let's look at verses nine and ten then. If you have your scriptures, you can read along with me. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So God's rest still remains. This is the very hearty yes, the very hearty yes to the question that the original hearers were asking. Does God's rest still remain? Absolutely, it still does. Now, an important point of clarification, this passage is not about the regular weekly rhythm of a day of rest. That's that's not what the preacher is writing about here. The Sabbath rest used here is a different Greek word than is used elsewhere. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament that this particular word is used. And the word actually conveys Sabbath celebration. Not Sabbath rest, Sabbath celebration. Again, not the weekly rest you might associate with Sundays. So I will say this. It um, It seems that Sabbath rest is an increasingly popular topic in American evangelicalism. We are a very busy people. We don't celebrate well. Um, we don't like to slow down. We might miss something. And so I think that's a very worthwhile topic, and, and while it would be great to spend some time there, that's not what this passage is about. I don't think that's what the preacher is talking about here. He's more focused. We've already talked about the already. He's more focused on the not yet of God's Sabbath rest. So that's where our application is going to be directed this morning. So then what is 
the Sabbath celebration. Again, it's the not yet of God's rest. It is the rest that God's people will experience when we are with him for eternity in heaven. That's the not yet of God's rest. That's the, the Sabbath rest. If you were to, we don't have time, but if you wanted to, you could go over and look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. It talks about going to that great city. That's what the Sabbath celebration will look like. So what does that rest look like? Well, given the time in which we live and our moment in church history and our branch of the church, we might be led to interpret you know, this verse 10 here, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. We might be interpret, uh, excuse me, um, tempted to interpret this as rest from uh, working to earn salvation. But that's, again, not what is meant here. We don't arrive in heaven to stop working to earn salvation. That's not when the working to earn salvation stops. That work ends the moment that we confess our sin and trust Christ because we know he's done all the work we need to be right with God. That's when the working to earn salvation ends. It ends today. The preacher is thinking about ceasing from spiritual strivings and struggles. That's what he's thinking about. Not, not this working in salvation. He's thinking about ceasing from the, the work and effort that comes from following Jesus in a body, in a mind that's been broken by sin. That's hard work. So our Sabbath rest, again, is not our weekly rest, but it is the final rest from our strivings when we enter into God's presence and experience his pleasure. We experience his peace on us to the uttermost. That's the kind of rest that the preacher is talking about here. So we have God's rest now and God's rest forever. And it's a meaning experiencing rest from work and worry. And that does really sound good, I hope. <laughs> so how do we enter? How do we enter God's rest? Well, this takes us to point three then, entering God's rest. Now, there are two commands to entering God's rest. Two commands in this passage. They're marked by let us and therefore. So again, open your Bibles, take a look with me. The first is in verse 1. He says, therefore, let us fear. And then skip ahead with me to verse 11. Let us therefore strive. These commands are really the heart of the preacher's exhortation to enter God's rest. Now, I want to set them into a broader context that I've outlined below. These two commands. So you can see under point three, I've got four points. How to fail, <laughs> how to succeed, the measure of success, and the source of success. Now, I'm kind of a bad news first guy. I like to get the bad stuff out of the way. So that's why we're going to start with how to fail. So if you would just continue to follow along with me in your outlines, how to fail. So the wilderness Jews failed to enter God's rest. Why? How? What happened? Verse 6 is very clear. They failed to enter because of disobedience. They acted like they were a part of God's people and maybe even felt like they were a part of God's people. But their disobedience at the time of testing was very telling. They seemed to be in the faith, but they were not. And so 
That's what we need to ask ourselves today. How can we seem to be in the faith, but maybe are not? What are the things that we should be watchful for in our own lives? Signs that while we think we're good, we're actually not. I'm going to give you three things this morning to to just look out for in your own life. And how you could fail. How you could miss out on God's eternal rest. The first one is this. Relying on a decision made in the past. Some of you have made a profession of faith in the past and are looking to that as the basis of the reality of your faith. The mentality effectively says how life is lived today doesn't matter. All that matters is that I made a decision for Christ. Consider this example. After Moses came down from Mount Sinai and read the commandments... The Jews said what? They said, all that you have said, we will do. We want to follow you, God. We will be obedient. They professed faith. But as the story unfolds, we learn that it wasn't real faith. The Jews made a decision for God, but it didn't have any staying power at all. The book of James tells us that that faith without works is really no faith at all. It is a dead faith. It means that your faith is not real. It means that you have not been changed. If that's who you are this morning, relying on a decision made in the past, I ask you to examine yourself. The mark, and this is what you should look for, the mark of a true disciple of Jesus, one that enters into his rest, is that of ongoing daily weekly decisions for him. Now, it's not always going to be easy or comfortable. It requires grit and determination. I think Luke 14 is one of my favorite passages. Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. If you want to be my disciple, you need to hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister. You need to count the cost. This is what it means to be a true follower of Jesus and to enter into his rest. There's much more to being a disciple of Jesus than a one-time decision. It requires a lot to be his disciple. But here's one thing. I want you to know, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. There's one thing that being a disciple of Jesus does not require. Perfection. You don't need to be perfect. You can't be perfect. God knows you can't be perfect. Knows you aren't perfect. Instead, he says, look to my son. Look to my son. Profess him as not just your savior, but live with him as your master and Lord. And his perfection is yours. I will tell you this, relying on a one-time decision is perilous. But I'll also tell you this, so is avoiding the community of believers. This is really the second way that you can fail in entering to God's rest, avoiding the community of God's believers. Now, last week, Lars called the Christian life a team sport, and I, I just think that's such a great analogy. It reminded me of the saying that, that if you want to go quickly, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Or said another way, and a little more cheeky, teamwork makes the dream work. So we aren't meant to go it alone. 
And this year we're talking about, you know, one of our, as we think about our theme of, of uh, revealing Jesus and, and seeing Jesus, um, that Jesus is better. Um, one of the things we're trying to do is, is um, cultivate some of the spiritual disciplines in our life, Bible intake, prayer. One of those spiritual disciplines is actually fellowship. It's actually being with other believers. It's a critical part of living the Christian life. Now, it means informal fellowship with believers who are friends and family, and also fellowship in the local church and maybe a more formal setting. We'll get to Hebrews 10 in a while, but I'll just read Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 for you. I know this will be familiar to many of you, but it's a good reminder. Let us consider how to stir, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's encourage one another. Let's not neglect meeting together. You put yourself in great peril. And there's something else that's interesting about fellowship. I was um, playing golf with an older um, believer. I was probably 20 or 21 at the time. And he asked me a question. He's like, hey, what's your thought? What's your thought today? Which is kind of his like cloaked and veiled way of saying, hey, what are you meditating on from the word today? Of course, sadly, my answer was uh, not much. And so um, we're walking down the fairway. He's like, well, you know, I just want to share some things about the Christian life with you. You know, Bible intake, reading your Bible, that's like food. You need that to, to live, to feed your body. And he said prayer. Prayer is like, it's like breathing. You need to pray for, for your spiritual life. And he said fellowship, fellowship is different. It's unique. Fellowship is like rest. Fellowship and being with the, the body of believers is like rest. And that's always stuck with me. When we avoid the community of believers, we cut ourselves off from our spiritual family. The same family, here's what's interesting, it's the same family you're going to spend eternity with. Better get used to them now. And there are a lot of, the thing is, we do that at times often when we need it the most. And listen, there are a lot of reasons that people give, but I would just want to offer up a couple that I think we are prone to. And I would just want to acknowledge, I understand there are circumstances when you cannot be here. There's a number of, it's not even have time to go into all of these things. But just know, I understand that there are certainly circumstances where you just can't do it. But I think there's also some pretty, um, there, there's some things that need to be addressed as well. So, so just two things. Number one, and I've, I'm too tired. It was a long week. We just need Sunday morning to catch our breath. If that's the case, you need to reprioritize. You've made other things, whether it's work, your kids' activities, other commitments, important enough so that when you get to Sunday morning, you're gassed. Time to start saying no to stuff that won't count for eternity and saying yes to what will. And then the second one is really directed towards our younger families. It's kids' sports. I'll just tell you, this is one that kind of sneaks up on you. For all those young families we have out here, you need to decide now how these things are going to go. Are you always going to say no to any Sunday sport activity? What if the game is in the afternoon and you can still attend all of church? 
What if you can make the Lord's Supper but not the preaching service? What if it's only once a season for a tournament? What about twice a season or once a month or every other Sunday? You see how that can sneak up on you? I'm not going to tell you what to do here, but husbands and wives, you need to talk about it before it gets here. If the first time you're talking about how you're going to handle Sunday sports is when you are on the spot, you're already losing. Get on it now. Talk about it. And the second thing to this about kids' sports and church on Sunday morning, and I just can't emphasize this enough, there are few things that speak as powerfully about the importance of fellowship than week in and week out church attendance. It's just basic blocking and tackling. Kids quickly learn how important fellowship is when, regardless of weather, whether it's nasty out or beautiful out, regardless of activities, and regardless of energy level, we go to church. It's just what we do. It's not up for debate. If you want to see your kids continue in the faith after they leave home, whether they're for the workforce or for college, bring them to church every Sunday. Now, of course, there's no guarantee. Only, only the Holy Spirit can make a dead heart alive. But I can almost guarantee you that if you don't do that, that they will drift away. I like to drive my forerunner. You guys probably know the 97 forerunner out there with the lift kit. I like to drive that forerunner until the low fuel light illuminates. And then I like to drive it a little further. And then a little further after that. I like to take the needle farther below the E than anybody I know. I even know how many miles I can get per tank based upon the average type of driving I've done on that tank. You know, if it's a bunch of trips to the airport, 300 miles, no problem. If it's city driving, I better be looking for a gas station at about 275, 280 ASAP. Now, this type of, I understand I've got maybe a higher risk tolerance than most of you. This type of risk tolerance has its downside. It turns out, it turns out you can actually run out of gas. <laughs> Your car will shut down. It's happened to me, um, it's happened to me three times. Four, if you count the time I drifted into the gas station. And you can ask Eliza about the most recent one three weeks ago on my birthday. See, I always think I'm going to have enough gas until I don't. That's what happens when we avoid fellowship. We deprive our spiritual engines of the fuel we so desperately need to enter God's rest. And if we aren't careful, we can actually run out of gas and not enter his rest. And I'm not talking about today, people. I'm talking about forever. You can miss it. It can happen. So let's not avoid this community. Let's be a part of the team and benefit by the richness of grace we experience in it. It can be a, to a large degree, I really believe this, it is to a large degree a foretaste of heaven. All right, point the... I guess this is number three under point one here. <laughs> um, so this is the, the other thing to be careful of as it relates to um, how you can fail. 
turning back from what's uh, turning back to what's comfortable and submitting to, to cultural ideas. Now, there's a risk of turning back from faith, whether explicitly renouncing Christ or passively slipping away, little piece by little piece. I think passively slipping away into unbelief is far more common and in much greater danger to us. Honestly, it's one of Satan's oldest lies to believe that, that I can dabble with sin or, or I can adopt a viewpoint that doesn't align with Scripture but still be on solid spiritual footing. That's one of his oldest lies. In our day, I believe the greatest danger comes on issues of sexuality. The Bible's teaching on sexuality is very clear. The church has been in agreement for 2,000 years on teaching as it relates to sexuality. But the rubber meets the road when you have a close friend or a sibling who comes out as gay. Your wilderness test may come when you have a child who says they are a girl stuck in a boy's body. What will you do? This is, I know these are extreme examples that I pray none of us would see. But the question is, will you love your child and hold to what the Bible teaches about gender? Or will you compromise? When you compromise, you put yourself at extreme risk of one day waking up and finding that you aren't a Christian at all. In Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, one of the characters, Bill Gorton, asks his, asks his fellow veteran, Mike, how did you go bankrupt? Two ways, Mike said. Gradually, then suddenly. Drifting from Jesus into unbelief is the same thing. It starts gradually. Little compromises here or there. And then one day you wake up and you don't believe. And you are out of the faith. Don't go back to what's comfortable. Don't give in to our current cultural moment. Because guess what? The current cultural moment will change. And you'll be running to catch up to the next thing. And then the next thing. And then the next thing. You will find no rest doing that. Instead, I urge you, cling to the unchanging foundation that is Jesus Christ. Point two, now under point three, I guess. Maybe it's point B, <laughs> under point uh, three. How to succeed. We're going to get a little more positive here. As I said earlier, this passage is bracketed by two therefores. Therefore, let us fear in verse one, and, and therefore strive to enter that rest in verse 11. In between is all of the logic to help us understand that God's rest is still here for those who are found to believe with faith in Christ. And these are the two keys to success of entering God's rest. Fear and striving. That's interesting, isn't it? Wouldn't the world have us know that the recipe for successful resting is to rest? But God's commands are quite clear, and they're different. Fear and striving. So, so what is the fear that we're talking about? Well, Proverbs, as we know, has much to say about fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think R.C. Sproul is very helpful here. I'm going to quote kind of off and on here as a couple minutes about fear. He distinguished between servile fear and filial fear. So servile fear is the anxiety of a slave to his master. 
and in particular a cruel and spiteful master. That's a servile fear. That's not the kind of fear that we have for our loving Lord. But filial fear is very different. It's the fear of a child for a father, in particular a kind and loving father. Sproul says such a person has a fear of an uh, fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture, even of punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is, in that child's world, the source of security and love. This is the fear that the preacher's talking about. Fear of disappointing our Heavenly Father. Fear of presuming upon His kindness and mercy to us. Fear of displeasing Him. If you've ever worked for a boss that you really liked, you didn't fear what he or she might do to you. You feared that you might let him down. That's what we're talking about. And I wish we had more time to talk about it. I think that many of us have a lot of misunderstanding as it relates to what it means to fear the Lord. But we're just going to have to save that for another time. Let's look at striving. Now, I don't want you to, again, confuse what the preacher's telling us here. He's not saying we must work to earn our salvation. I don't know how many times I've said that, but I'm just going to say it again. He means strive to live in a way that aligns with your beliefs. Strive to enter God's wonderful and peaceful rest. In John 10.28, Jesus says this. This is, again, John 10.28. He says, I give them eternal life. Speaking of his believers. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen to that, right? How good is it to know that we can't be snatched out of Jesus' hands? But to, but to get the complete picture, look at verse, uh, the verse before, verse 28. Here Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice, and that he knows them, and that they follow him. His sheep hear him. He knows them, and what? They follow him. The idea behind following Jesus is a persevering endurance. Now, it's not earning. Think about all the athletic imagery in the Bible, right? Running, boxing, training. All these athletic endeavors are used to illustrate the Christian life because in order to be successful in both sport and Christian life, you've got to be disciplined and self-controlled. But as I said earlier, this is a team sport, and we need each other to strive well. I... Just going to be honest with you, I hate geese. Canadian geese are foul. If you like them, I'm sorry if I offended you. They are they're gross. Uh, they leave their poo everywhere, and it's just, I don't care for them. But they're going to serve my purposes this morning with what I think is an excellent illustration. Why do geese fly in a V? So I got all this from the Library of Congress, by the way. Scientists have determined that the V-shaped formation serves two important purposes. The first one is this. It conserves energy. Each bird flies slightly above the bird in front of him, resulting in a reduction of wind resistance. The birds take turns. And this is interesting, too. The birds take turns being in front, falling back when they get tired. In this way, the geese can fly for a long time before they must stop for rest. The second benefit to the V-formation is that it is easy to keep track of every bird in the group. Flying information may assist with communication and coordination within the group. Let's just be like Canadian geese in this one way. <laughs> Let's fly in a V formation together. Yes? 
Let's help each other. Conserve energy. Lead when leading needs to be done. Falling back when we are tired and others need to leave. Lead. Keeping track of one another. I actually think it's a great example. And just lastly, under striving. Striving sometimes looks like just holding fast. You're not moving. You're not going anywhere. Emotionally, spiritually, you might feel like you're just laying on the ground. That's when striving is just holding fast to Jesus. It starts with affirming the authority and errancy of all of Scripture, right? It becomes problematic when you hold that some Scripture is inerrant and some isn't. How do you decide what is and what isn't? So we start there with God's Word, but that's kind of a rational thing, right? What about our hearts when you're just devastated by some circumstance in life? This is the beauty of the Christian faith. It's been said that we are a people of the book, and amen to that, right? But we are also people of a person. Of course, that's Jesus. What I mean is this. When you don't think you can hold on any longer, look to Jesus and remember that he has been there too. He knows what it feels like to be overwhelmed. He has been grieved deeply. He knows loss. He knows betrayal. He knows suffering. He has walked a mile in your shoes and then a second mile as well. So when the going gets tough, the tough remember that Jesus has been there too and is even with you now. Point C, the measure of success then. We'll look at the living and active word. The living and active word is the measure of our success. How will we know if we are entering God's rest? What is the measure of our success? Well, God's word is our measure. Now, if you have your scriptures open, follow along with me, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word is living and active. It is powerful and efficacious. The same word that created all that you see, including those Rocky Mountains, is the same word that calls spiritually dead people out of the grave. And it's the same word which divides what is indivisible. You can't divide soul and spirit. You can't divide joints and marrow. He divides what is indivisible because his word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's like a scalpel making precise incisions into our consciences. God's word discerns what other people can, our thoughts and intentions. Not only is it God's word that discerns our thoughts and intentions, God himself sees us. I think sometimes we think we can hide behind a facade when it comes to the Lord. But here's the thing. We're actually like a toddler. You ever played hide-and-seek with a toddler? That's what it's like trying to hide from God. The only one who's playing is the toddler, right? The adult knows right where the toddler is. It's the same thing with the Lord. We can try to hide from him, but whether it's today or tomorrow or after we die, we were all going to have to deal with both God's word and with himself. And so let me tell you this. There is great reason to try and hide. Our sin is absolutely unacceptable to God. When something happens that I don't like in my life, 
I like to say to myself, that's unacceptable. But you know what I can do about it? Absolutely nothing. So I have to accept it. God's totally different. If something is unacceptable to him, it's changed. He doesn't change. He's unchangeable. And so this is the problem that we have with God. Our sin makes us unacceptable to him. God is so perfect, so other, so set apart, so brilliantly holy that he cannot accept sin in his presence. Not because it would sully him or dirty him. He's unchangeable. But because it is so absolutely offensive to him. It's rebellion. Sin is rebellion. There's two kinds of rebellion. There's the rebellion that's the shaking of the fist, but more often rebellion comes like it did for the wilderness Jews. It's a lack of belief. We don't trust him to do what he said or to be who he says he is. And so we rebel by trusting our own judgment more than his. And so that's why, in our last point here, point D, we need the ultimate source of, his, of success. We need Jesus How do you avoid this rebellion of a lack of belief? We've already talked about fearing and striving, but ultimately we have to look outside ourselves to Christ. No amount of filial fear, no amount of striving will bring us to our final rest. Only Jesus can do that. And let me tell you this. In fact, he has done that. He has entered into that rest. It's done All we have to do is follow him. Only the good shepherd knows his sheep, and he calls them by name. Only he can bring us into that sheepfold of God's rest. And we know he did that by taking the punishment for our sin on the cross. And let's tie that back to God, who can't accept our sin, right, in in our rebellion. We're unacceptable. He must punish that. And that's what happened on the cross. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the beauty of the rest that God offers. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the offer of rest in your son Jesus today and tomorrow forever with you in heaven. We look forward to that day, but until then, let us strive. Let us fear you. Let us work together as a family, as a team, to see that we all arrive safely home with you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And let me just bless you, congregation, with this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.